But if this is your first time with us, we are um, walking through the gospel of uh, Mark. And really, it's the gospel of Jesus, just written by Mark. So I think sometimes we, we say that, and, and the good news is not four different pieces of good news that are given to us. They're all one piece of good news that God has given to us uh, through Scripture, written down by four different people. Um, and so the Gospel of Mark is telling the story about who Jesus is. And so we're in Mark 11. At the end of Mark 11, there's 16 chapters in Mark. And so we're moving towards the end. But what we've found kind of as a, a setting and knowing where we're at is the first eight chapters of Mark are like three years. And then the last eight chapters are one week. And so it really slows down. And all of these different narrative stories, in it, Jesus is teaching. Uh, he's teaching everyone. He's teaching the disciples that are with him, the people that have followed him throughout his ministry. He's teaching new people that he's running into. He's teaching the people that he's come to heal and to save. And so what we see in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus interacting with people. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is um, Jesus coming into the temple. And in Jerusalem, the temple represented the house of God. It represented the authority of God. It represented um, when God would speak and what his words would be, because that is where the, the, the words of God were read to the people. And so the temple has taken on this, the, the, pre, the very presence of God. And so Jesus comes into that temple, and he sees that actually it's been changed. And people that, hate, that have been put in authority are using and abusing that authority for their own gain, rather than to glorify God, rather than to reach the lost. Last week we talked about uh, how they had turned the, temple, the, the, um, the court of the Gentiles, which is where this proclamation is supposed to be read to people who, who would not be able to enter in and hear it, they had turned that into something that would, instead of proclaiming and ministering to the Gentiles, it was taking advantage of the Gentiles. And so Jesus rightfully comes in and in his, uh, in his judgment begins to flip over tables and we're like, whoa, that's not the Jesus that I know and love. But the reality is that that's true. Jesus has the authority to do that. And so what we're going to see today is, is now those people that have been put in power come and they ask Jesus, who... Who says? Have you ever been on a playground? Maybe for some of us it was a long time ago. Or maybe we have kids and we take them to the playground and we hear it all the time. But, but the idea of um, an argument that's taking place. Maybe we have a, a couple kids and so I'll send one to go relay my message to the other ones. And they'll, they'll get it and that's not what they want to do. So then they ask the question, who says? Right? Who says that I have to do that? And it's not just a kid thing. Like we do that in, in our places of work. If someone outside of our known authority comes in and tells us what to do, we're like, wait a second, who says that I have to do that? Because there's this, there's this thing in us. A, we want to acknowledge proper authority, but we also just don't like being told what to do. That's real for all of us. Um, maybe some of us, it, it's not so much that you don't like being told what to do, um, maybe you're looking for the right person to tell you what to do. But what we have here is the, the rulers of the, center, of the temple come to Jesus and they're essentially asking that same question. Who says? 
By what authority do you come and you begin to act and to move and to teach and to change everything? Who says that you can do that? And so, let's listen because we have a lot of the same questions. We have a lot of the same heart questions. these, These questions just aren't about like institutions and authority. They're questions of the heart. We don't like... we're. We're rebellious. Like there's a part of us that is rebellious towards these things. And so let's listen and let's ask God to give us ears to hear and, and really to, by, his, by the power of His Holy Spirit, change our hearts today. Will you pray with me? God, we thank You. We thank You that we can come honestly and that, that even the reflection that we see of our hearts, Lord, in Scripture, you would do that in your kindness. You would, it's grace that you would judge. It's grace that you would expose our sin. That it's, it's the love of God that would come and say, you have a better plea than your own righteousness. You have a plea of the righteousness of my son. And so what I pray that today we would rest in that, even as we see... Um, arguments for our own, our own righteousness taking place, Lord, that we would rest in your righteousness. I pray that you would do this through your word. We thank you so much for the gift of your word, that we would know your heart. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit that dwells inside of us, that actually takes these spoken words and applies them to our heart and to our mind and changes the way that we would live. God, and I thank you for the, the community of the church. Lord, that we don't have to figure this out on our own, but we get to do it together as the body of Christ, being transformed and conformed together to the image of Christ, formed into a bride so that you would be glorified in all things. We thank you for all of these things. We pray that as your word goes out among the, the people in Brevard County, among the people in the states, among the people in the world, Lord, that it would be good news Lord, we think about those that are hurting and those that are struggling, Lord, just to eat, just to survive. Lord, and they have the same hope that we have today. That your word is true, that you are faithful, and that you are good. We trust you in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a couple things here. The, The first thing that we see as we enter into the scripture, and they came... Again to Jerusalem. They as the disciples and Jesus. They've been going back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. During this Passover week. And they come again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? It's not a new question. It's actually a repeated question that's, that's being asked from the very beginning. As Jesus shows up on the scene, the question is being asked, Who are you? Because you don't act, you don't talk, you don't do the same things that everyone else does. You're different. Who are you? It's been asked by many. In Mark 1, Jesus heals the man with the unclean spirit, but the, the marvel that's sandwiched on the outside of this miracle is in verses 22 and 27 was that his authority to teach like any other. Mark 
1.22 said, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And then in 27, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. From the very beginning, Mark chapter 1. So that's the beginning of our, of our account in Mark. The question has been, who is this? He's different. He teaches with an authority unlike any other. The scribes had questioned his authority to forgive sins in Mark 2, when Jesus both healed the paralytic and forgave his sins. Like, that's, that's crazy. That's powerful. Mark 2, 8 through 12 says this, And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. There's a question. Who are you to forgive sins? Who... Who gives you that authority? And they're all asking it in their hearts. Even the disciples who, who thankfully continue to walk and pursue Jesus, longing to know Him and understand Him, they have the same questions. They have the, the questions of His authority over nature. Remember in Mark 4, 41, Jesus calms the storm and calms the waves. And then the disciples are in fear and they said they're filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's not a new question. This question of Jesus' authority. And every time it's asked, it leaves them in fear and in wonder. And so today, I, I hope it leaves us in both fear and wonder. Like, who is this Jesus that I, I think that I know? I hope that I know. So that we would walk reverently. I used to have a shirt. My mom hated it. And looking back on it, I kind of understand. But it, it said, Jesus is my homeboy. There's a lot of things that's wrong with this, right? Like, like I wore it to school all the time. I went to a Christian school, so I was trying to, trying to be cool. Um, but Jesus is my homeboy, which is it's true. Like, he is a friend that we have, right? He, he, has, he sympathizes with us in every way. And yet, he is king. So like maybe if it was picturing Jesus as my homeboy like this, but he had a crown on and I didn't, maybe that would help. But it would still not compare to the reality of how Jesus is both very present, very near. He is a friend like no other, and yet he is the king. And so, thank you, Mom, for, for beginning to show me that truth. But this idea that Jesus has authority. But in that time, right, we have to remember that the culture that Jesus is entering into is not like our culture. And so that's, that's hard. It, it means like um, we have to almost travel back in time. We have to kind of take our own uh, presumptions and assumptions and let, let God dictate to us what he's saying in that time, and then, and then say, okay, what does that mean for us today? So this authority was given and granted in that time. Jesus gave his authority to his disciples. We've seen that several times. In the very beginning, as he calls them by name to himself, it says they had been appointed to this authority 
in their calling. Mark 3, 14 and 15. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This authority that Jesus received, and we're going to see very clearly that it comes from God the Father, he then gives to his disciples. And he tells them, go out. The, the whole reason that he would call him. And then we see later on in Mark 6 and 7 where he gathered the disciples and sends them out to do ministry and live on mission. It says in Mark 6, 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. If you remember, there's one time where Jesus' authority isn't questioned and it's when he goes to cast out the demons and they recognize immediately, this is the Son of God. He has authority to, to do whatever he wants. And they beg and plead, will you cast me into those pigs? Because that would, be, that would be better than whatever it is that you're going to do. So they immediately recognize his authority. Even as we struggle and we question it, like there's a reality that God is, Jesus is an authority. And Jesus then gives his authority to his disciples. But this culture that they live in, um, it's not like our culture. In our culture, it's, it's honored that you can start from absolutely nothing and you can become whatever you want to be. And so often the story is that someone who had nothing becomes great and has a lot of things. And, and the American culture is, is all about that. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It's just a different thing from the, the time and place where Jesus is coming to the Jewish people. They lived in an honor-shame culture. That that you could be honored, but it would take generations for your family name to grow and to become move up the, la the ladder of success and glory, but it would take one mistake and you would be shamed. And then it, it would ruin you and your family. And so we just don't understand that, I think, like a little bit, but not to the degree that, that the first century church would understand that. And so just try to under put ourselves in that situation to see that this story that Jesus coming in as a babe, like a babe of illegitimate birth, a babe that was born in a barn, like this story then become, becomes not something that's celebrated, but it's scandal. It's something that would, would bring shame on a family. Imagine Joseph and Mary and the shame that they had, like trying to relate to people like what is true and people not believing them. And so in that culture, this is the way that God the Father has decided to come and, and bring the Son, the Redeemer, the one who would save, and He's done it in a way that would look and, and seem shameful. And yet God in His kindness has chosen to do it that way. And so even as the question is like, hey, who are you? Normally, the, the response would be, well, I am the son of, the son of, the son of. And it would point to this lineage and this history that would give you authority and validation. And so the questions that are coming to Jesus are looking for that type of response. Who are you? What family do you come from? What's your learning? Where did you go to school? 
Right? Those are the types of questions that we ask too. When we look to someone with authority. And yet God has chosen the low to make them great. And so we talk about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. When he declares that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we've said that it's an upside down kingdom. But I don't think we understand how radical that is to the culture that he's coming to. And then we don't want it to be that radical to our culture. We don't want to acknowledge the fact that if that's what Jesus is saying in that time, maybe he's calling us to some sort of radical understanding of who he is in this culture. That he would take the very low things and make them great. He would take what should have been shameful in that culture and give it great honor. Flip these things around. And so, just as we think about that, let's, let's go in with that mindset today. That Jesus didn't come to um, establish and solidify our idea of what is good. He's come to tell us what he thinks is good and who he is. And what does it mean to have authority. So, it's a question of authority. It's a question that's been asked for a long time. It's a question, uh, the authority has been delegated. It's been given to other people as he gave it to his disciples. And it's a question that's being asked by those in authority. That piece right there that says, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, a quote from James Edwards in his pillar commentary, which is helpful. The, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were the three groups that comprised the Sanhedrin. Although in this instance, they represent a delegation from the Sanhedrin rather than the entire council. The Sanhedrin a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish nation was composed of 71 members who held complete freedom in religious matters and restricted power in political matters. Okay, Joel, what does that mean? Like, Well, I had to look it up. But this idea of the Sanhedrin is this group of men who God had placed in authority. Like he had established chief priests and elders and scribes, and all of those things, but they had become more political in their influence than religious in their influence. And what we're going to see is, is not just this week, but in the coming weeks, Jesus is beginning to uh, tear apart, to, to subvert their authority in religious matters in particular. And He can, because He's the Son of God. So if there's anybody who knows the heart and the mind of God, it's the Son. But as the authorities are challenged in this, they begin to question. And we've already seen from the very beginning that they, they've plotted and planned to kill Him. And so these elders and scribes and chief priests, and, and I think sometimes we lump them all together and we're like, oh, those are the bad guys. I don't think that's true. I think some of them were truly seeking after God. But there were some that weren't. There were some that were loud. And there were some that were influencing those around them. Because their power was being challenged by Jesus. You see the Sanhedrin is the authority of the Jewish people. Particularly since Israel is a theocracy. The religious leaders were in authority. They had all the authority. They were the last say in matters of life. In matters of work, in matters of 
pleasure and matters of entertainment and recreation. Like they were the ones who said things were either good or they were bad according to God's law. And so to have that kind of authority is, is intense. Like it's, you, we can't imagine it because we live in a democracy. We live in a place where we get to make most of the rules by voting. But to have that kind of idea that, that no, there is one king who is in control, and that king is somebody that I can't even see. It's God himself, and he speaks through his people. And God had called it to be that way from the beginning. That he would be their God, and they would be his people. But the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were the ones who had the authority. And so, then when Jesus comes in, and he begins to flip tables, and he begins to challenge the authority that's in place yeah, they're going to rise up and they're going to say, hey, who are you? Who do you think you are to be able to tell me what I can and cannot do? I'm the one that's supposed to be making the rules and you're coming in and you're changing the rules. And we see it right in this passage. It's beautiful. Often there would be um, a question. And so if you had our Jewish rabbi, I know this feels like a lot of teaching, but it it's good for us. Like it's good to understand these things so that when we read these stories, they're not just we're not just getting through the parts we don't understand to get to something better. We're taking it all in and we're saying, man, all of this is good for my edification. It's good for my knowledge. It's good for my trust and my belief in who God is. But this idea that a Jewish rabbi would teach and often he would ask questions. Or his students would, his disciples, those that were following him, would ask questions. And instead of answering the question directly, he would respond with a question. And so Jesus is doing that with the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Now if you're them, you don't expect anyone to, to treat you like a disciple. You're the one who is always on the upper end of that echelon. You're always the one dictating down. And so for Jesus to come and they ask him a question, whose authority are you teaching with? Jesus says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Already he's already putting himself on the same level as them. And what we're going to see is that he's actually not on the same level as them. He is God himself. But just this question being answered with a question is a way that they would teach. And so Jesus, in his kindness, is calling these men, these men in authority, to a place of repentance, to a place of, of change, to a place of understanding. But they don't see it. All they do is they react in anger and fear. And we see that as the passage goes on. Jesus says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Well, if you remember, John the Baptist came and he proclaimed uh, that, that there was one coming who would bring in this kingdom. And this kingdom was unlike the kingdom that they were in. And so he calls them to repentance. He calls the people to repentance. And he had to do it outside the city. 
Because if he did it inside the city and began to call for the same repentance that Jesus was calling for, he would immediately be killed. But instead he stood outside the city and he called whoever would come and whoever would listen to hear, to hear the good news that the Messiah was coming and to repent of the ways that they had been living. And so John the Baptist went about that mission. That was the baptism that he, he was calling for. And so Jesus is asking this question. He's saying, hey, who did the baptism of John come from? Was it from God or was it from man? And there's a, there's a truth here that we're going to see. If you remember, Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus submitted to going into the water with John so that he would be baptized in that baptism. And do you remember what happened? Like it's one of the coolest stories that we saw in Mark. Let's read it together. Mark 1, verses 9 through 11. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Day like today, they're in the river and all of a sudden everything stops to the point where you can hear the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. When you talk about whose authority are you under? They're asking the question, who sent you? But they already know. Everyone has talked about this. Even if they weren't there, this has gone, like, it, it's gone viral. No, I was there that time when Jesus was baptized. And the sun, the, the, the heavens opened up and a voice came down from heaven. And we heard and it said, this is my beloved son. And so Jesus is calling the elders to either refute that and say that's not true or to acknowledge that it was true, in which case they already know. And so they're left in this dilemma. You see, they, they acknowledge that Jesus has authority. They've acknowledged that he teaches like no other. They've seen that he has power to heal. They've seen that he liberates the, the blind and, and the demon possess and frees them. He's cleansed them of their sins. Like all of these things are recorded by those who are, who are traveling around with him and being told to others. And so they know this Jesus has power and authority unlike any other. And this is one of the most straightforward approaches that they take to challenge him. They actually straight up ask him rather than trying to trick him, rather than trying to um, subvert him into, into blasphemy. They just ask him straight up, who sent you? Who says that you can do these things? And so, I kind of have some respect for him in that moment. Like, thank you for finally asking a question that we all would ask and doing it in a way that we would want to do it. They asked Jesus directly who gives him authority. But Jesus has already answered him. And he already knows that they don't really want to know because if they did, they'd already believe. So the question becomes, who sent John? 
This baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You see there's questions that are asked like this. That would um, both reveal and conceal. They would reveal the heart of God to those who are seeking after Him. Those who, by the power of the Spirit, have longed to know Him. And then there's questions like this that that would actually conceal. It's the same question, and to some it reveals, and to some it conceals. The religious leaders, their hearts are already hardened. They don't want Jesus to have the power. And so they're asking these questions, and they're not going to get the answer that they're looking for. They're not going to believe Unless there's this crazy heart change taking place in them. And so what do they do? They're left with either saying, yes, he was from God. John's baptism was from God. Therefore, you're the son of God because at his baptism it was revealed there. Or they have to say, no, John was sent by man. It's a whole scheme that he came up with. In which case they lose power because there's so many people that are already have seen it and heard the story and believe that John was sent by God. And because power, because control, because authority is a thing that they need, a thing that they're holding on to tighter than anything, they can't answer that way. They can't answer either way. Because then one gives authority to Jesus and says, yes, you are the Son of God and whatever you say, I'm going to have to walk in and believe. Or they say, no, you're not. John's baptism was from man, and they're going to be ousted out. They will no longer be able to lead the people because they won't won't follow them. And so Jesus has very cleverly, because he's the son of God, he's like brilliant, phrased this question in a way that they cannot answer. And so what do they do? They do... Probably the shrewd thing, the wise thing for them, but it's also the cowardly thing. They say we don't know. That's a lie. They know. They they know. It's a lie they're using to cover up their true answer. But now we get to take this story that happened 2,000 years ago in a culture that's way different from ours, in a time that's way different from ours, and we get to bring home this answer because we say the same answer. We say, I don't know. It's often our answer. You see, knowing the revelation of who God is, we still don't like His answer, and so often we plead ignorance. It's not that we don't know, but it's that we don't like what we know. It doesn't sit right with us. It's often a question of authority. It's a question of who's in control of my life. Is it God the Father through His Son Jesus that He sent with power and authority or is it me? And we think that we would be better if we had the authority, if we had the control, if we had the power, like, like life would be better. I'm thankful that often I'm reminded when I get a little power, or a little control in very small things and I blow it, that that's not actually true. It's, it would not be better if I was in power, if I was in authority, if I was in control. I had the perfect one, Jesus, 
who has been given all authority and all power. And how has He used it? Has He used it to subdue and to lord it over people and to use them for Himself? No. He came and He took that power, that authority that He's given. And He served. And He laid down His life. As a ransom for many. Look at the way Jesus uses authority. Unlike the religious rulers of his day, Jesus uses authority to serve the ones that he rules over. This is Jesus, the creator of all things, the Son of God, and therefore he has the authority above all other authorities, above the Sanhedrin, above even Rome at that time. And we, we don't understand that. That's a whole other concept, a whole other layer on top of this thing is that even the Jewish people were subjected to the governing body of Rome. And we'll see more of that as we, as we move into this Passion Week. But this Jesus, the creator of all things, is the authority above all other authorities. Colossians 1, 15-20 puts it beautifully and clearly for us. It says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's talking about Jesus. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. It says that He created all dominions, all rulers, all authority. He's over everything. 17, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This is Jesus that we're talking about. He is the image of the invisible God. When you see Him, you see the beauty, the majesty, the power, the righteousness, the justice, the mercy, all of the things that we attribute to a holy God, you see them in Jesus. And what does Jesus do with that? So then he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This Jesus, the all-powerful, the almighty, the all-authoritative Jesus, has come and he's... he's sub- He's subjected himself to the will and perfect plan of the Father. He's born of illegitimate birth. It's scandalous. He lives in seclusion for most of his life. And then he enters into his ministry. And every, at every turn, he's challenged and he's rejected. Even in his own hometown, remember that? His own family rejected him. Jesus has de- decided that I'm going to be perfectly obedient to the Father. And what we don't have yet in this story is that He's perfectly obedient all the way to the cross. All the way to death. It's bad enough they're challenging His authority, they're they're disrespecting Him, they're doing all of these things, but they're going to kill Him. They're going to kill Him. And because he's all powerful and has all authority, he could have stopped that. He could have, angels could have come down from heaven and ministered to him and saved him. He could have just gone back to heaven and ascended as he did after the resurrection, before the resurrection. But instead, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. And he gave up his life and he served those he had authority over. 
This is the good news of the gospel. Like this is what should get us up in the morning that the all-powerful mighty one laid down his life to save a wretch like me. And if you don't think I'm a wretch, ask my wife. She'll tell you. <laughs> this is good news. Right? That, that the one who has all authority would lay it down for sinners like us. Jesus is the fullness of God. His righteousness His compassion, His forgiveness are seen in Jesus. Jesus is currently using His absolute authority in our narrative to use sinful and evil mankind to bring about His sinless and perfect plan. A plan to atone for the sins of man and to redeem a people for Himself. Even as He answers their question with a question, He knows it's going to frustrate them. He knows it's going to drive them to kill Him. And if you think this one's a little abrasive, wait till we get to next week. And we see the parable of the, the vine dressers and where he, he calls them out in their evil, power-hungry authority. He's doing all of this for a pers- purpose, knowing that this is going to drive them to kill him so that he could lay down his life for us. Jesus is not caught off guard. He is submitting to the plan and will of the Father, the triune God, and all of it is to bring glory to Himself through His obedience. So what do we do with this today? Like, what do we do with this awesome story? We're like, wow, that's, that's pretty powerful, pretty cool, pretty mind-blowing. But what do we do? Well, we do the same thing we do every week. We're called to repent and to believe. In this place... In this story, like, what, are, what do we see them acting in? We see them lying. So we need to repent of our lies. Where have you said you don't know truth because that would be easier? Where have you pleaded ignorance when you know what God has said and He's called you to walk in these things? The lies of omission and commission. Maybe, maybe you're not being directly... Uh, opposite of what God has said, but maybe you're also not walking in what He has called you to do. So under that, we are all indicted. Right? We are all uh, called out in our sin. And so we need to repent of that. We need to repent of our lives. We need to repent of our rebellion. If you're like me, you don't like being told what to do. If you're married, that shows up every day. If you have kids, they don't like being told what to do, right? It's every relationship. We have this thing that we think that we know best, and yet we have a God who is all-powerful and perfect and good. He's good. He's not like those in authority that would want to rule over them and abuse them. He is there for their flourishing. And so we need to repent of our trying to be our own king and trying to rule life our own way. Some of us need to repent of our apathy. Maybe we hear the story and we just don't care. We need to beg God for, for, for forgiveness, for not caring. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would empower us with a passion to worship our God, our King, with all of life. Like, we need to repent. And on the other side of repentance, we need to believe. 
We need to believe that this God who is in authority, this Jesus sent by the Father to usher in the kingdom, He's a good king. Even as we see evil and wickedness and brokenness around us and we say, how could a good king allow that to happen? There will come a day where this king will come not as a suffering servant, but as a triumphant ruler. And he will destroy evil. He will punish the wicked. Sin will be no more. We need to believe that. So that we can continue to suffer in in the evil that's around us. So that we can continue to walk in the way that God has called us to. This morning we need to believe. We need to trust in the authority of King Jesus. We need to believe in His grace and love toward repentant sinners through His humility as a suffering servant. We need to rest assured that He'll punish evil by His authority as the King. And this morning we need to truly believe that He is God's Son and walk in worship and obedience today. Amen? Amen. God, would you do that in us? Even as we're called to do that, we're like, man, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I want to turn from my sin. But God, we trust that you're doing those things in us. We trust that you're changing, transforming, conforming us into your image. Not for our sake, but for your glory. God, we want to... We want to see you as king, and that to be something that we revel in rather than rebel against. Lord, we want to see you as the one who has all authority, and instead of trying to uh, wordsmith and lawyer against, Lord, I pray that we would just submit. Because you are good. You are powerful. But Lord, we just, often we don't believe that to be true. So Lord, would you do that in us? Would you give us the gift of faith today? We ask this in your name. Amen.